Hello, and welcome back to Gamification Unlocked, a show about real games and how we can use their techniques for learning and change. I'm Chad Hafley. I work in areas related to user experience on the web in university libraries. And I'm Brandon Carper, a training designer. And this week, I'm going to shift things around very slightly. So this episode ordinarily would have been perhaps the next episode, but given current events, I thought we'd bump it up a little bit. Um, we're going to be talking about uh, a topic which we'll then elaborate on another episode about how controllers and other um, devices like that that you play games with could maybe be used to teach muscle memory and other related skills. And more details on that forthcoming. But as uh, you know, breaking news, insert little music bed here, da, 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 uh, or as, as much as breaking news as there is in um, the podcast serious games world. Um, one of the articles I was looking at as I was researching that topic for the other episode. Um, so much of what I was seeing was about could um, playing games, as I said, kind of give transferable skills to other areas just by the nature of using a controller. Uh, and well, I'm sure we'll talk more about that. But then I started thinking, what about the other way around? And could special built controllers be used to teach skills in other interfaces? For example, um, the first thing that came to mind, which was probably a terrible example, um, did you ever own any weird controller add-ons for the Wii? Oh, for the Wii? Yeah. Uh, we had the Wii balance board, mm-hmm. but I think... That was it. I remember seeing you could get kind of a steering wheel for Mario Kart. Which was a terrible, terrible control method. Was it? <laughs> yes. I attempted it once. <laughs> the, uh, the the in-game chat option in Mario Kart on the Wii, or at least on the Wii U, had a specific button you could press to announce that you were playing with the, the tilt controls. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. I, as if it wouldn't be apparent by your driving style already, I guess. I don't know. It, it was very strangely constructed. Uh, but the, the Wii was perhaps king of the weird controller add-ons. There were like, you could take the little Wii mote, the motion sensitive part and put it in something that turned it into a fishing reel or the steering wheel or really just anything you could think of, but also including perhaps the most natural one for games, that of a gun shell, uh, that made it function mechanically as, as if you're holding a, a, a light gun game more along the lines of like what was used for duck hunt back in the day or in any number of arcade games since then. And the article I found specifically about this was called Boom Headshot, Effective Video Game Play and Controller Type on Firing Aim and Accuracy, which as soon as I read that article title, I just kind of sighed a little bit. <laughs> Why did you sigh, Chad? Well, first of all, beginning with Boom Headshot is just kind of an inflammatory <laughs> thing right off the bat. And, you know, not really... Uh, of the right tone I generally think of with academic articles that have gone through the peer review process. It makes me think of, what was that video that we used to watch in college about, was it Counter-Strike? Was it Headshot Dave or Headshot Steve or something? Um, yes. And, uh, I've... He, would go, he would go running with a knife because in the knife you ran fast. And then in the game you ran faster if you were holding a knife or something. Yes. Uh, was it was it... Um... <laughs> Oh, his name was FPS something, like F- FPS Dave, oh, maybe? Oh, yeah, that's, yeah, okay. Yeah, and I think that might actually be the video that Boom Headshot originated <laughs> from as a catchphrase or meme or whatever you want to call it. So, you know, dated reference, first of all. And also, it's just kind of inflammatory in that well, I think one of the big things, people who work 
with games in general are always trying to refute is the idea that, you know, gamers are all just um, psychotic murder machines waiting for the opportunity to pick up a real gun. Uh, but this article was published in 2014, although a pre-published copy of it appeared online in 2012, which implies the research was probably done in like 2011 or thereabouts. And it was published in the journal Communication Research and written by uh, Brad Bushman and Jody Whitaker. And their methodology was kind of interesting and um, caught my interest off the bat. So they divided participants into three groups. They either played Resident Evil 4, which is, you know, a violent shooting game, uh, the We Play Target Practice minigame, which is a shooting game, but somewhat less violent unless you feel particularly empath- em- empathetic toward uh, target-shaped discs. <laughs> um, and I've never played that one, admittedly. Or the third game that the control group was given was Super Mario Galaxy as an example of a non-violent game. Although, I mean, you still jump on Goombas, but perhaps since they're not human-shaped, we don't care. I've actually played none of these games. None of them? Okay, well, this should be (laughs) an interesting discussion then. (laughs) But you've played other Mario games, right? Yes, yes, I have. And I imagine you've played... I played played Mario 64. Okay. And I imagine you played Mario Galaxy. Yeah, it's a three-dimensional run around, jump on things Mario game. And I imagine you've played some sort of shooting gun game at some point. No, Chad, never. I have never. Yes, all the time. (laughs) Do you have a particular (laughs) favorite? Of a shooting gun game. Um, uh, Well, we've talked a lot about Halo on the podcast, Mm -hmm. so probably that one. Yeah. What about one that involves more of a, a physical gun controller? Uh, you know, I don't think I've actually used a physical gun controller except for Duck Hunt way mm-hmm. back, way back when. Maybe I played, do you remember the Super Scope for Super Nintendo? Oh, yes, was... the Super Scope was amazing. This, like, vaguely bazooka-shaped thing that you had to hold on your shoulder. Yes, and there was exactly one game for it, and the, and the great tradition of all peripherals made for <laughs> Hey, I owned games two games for the Super Scope. Oh, I'm thank, sorry. Thank you very much. <laughs> and they were mediocre. And it also took way too many batteries. But that is another battery issue for another time. And the point of this article, what they the hypothesis they were testing is that playing the violent games would make players, specifically using gun-shaped controllers, uh, make them more accurate at shooting real weapons. And so at the end of playing the games for, I think, 20 minutes a day for three days, they were given airsoft pistols and given a human-shaped mannequin to shoot at. And then they measured the... Um, the accuracy and everything related to that. I'm going to quote directly from the article for a conclusion that they reached. Participants who played a violent shooting game using a pistol-shaped controller had 99% more headshots than did other participants. Post hoc tests showed that participants who played a violent shooting game using a pistol-shaped controller had the most headshots, whereas participants who played a non-violent non-shooting game had the fewest headshots. And additionally, people who used the gun-shaped controllers were more accurate than um, people who played the same game without a gun-shaped controller, which was kind of interesting to think about. But, you you know, off the bat, 99% more headshots seems, based on 20 minutes, three times. That's a lot of headshots. That is a lot of headshots. And they were more accurate in general also, and then also aimed for the head more often after playing the violent game, and in particular with the gun-shaped controller. So the article concluded then that gun-shaped controllers are good training tools for learning how to shoot. And then, of course, they put in a disclaimer like, quote, it is important to note that our results do not indicate that a person who plays violent shooting games is more likely to fire a real gun at a person, which 
okay, but the rest of the article still felt very inflammatory to me in, in the way that it was written. Um, you know, it'll turn you into potential murder machines, but not actual murder machines. But mm -hmm. if, you know, it, it supposedly was solidly constructed academic research, um, and, you know, it said that if they were to fire a gun, he or she would fire more accurately and be more likely to aim for the head. These results indicate the powerful potential of video games to teach or increase skills, pot including potentially lethal weapon use. And then, of course, people who played the... the um, there was even a difference between participants who played the violent game Resident Evil 4 and people who played the non-violent shooting game, the target shooting one on the Wii. Those who played the violent game were much uh, more accurate afterwards. So the violence was apparently some kind of factor also. And... Hmm. But did they test with zombie and non-zombie targets? <laughs> I mean, frankly, <laughs> if it's going to make us more accurate at shooting zombies, I feel like that's a solid societal <laughs> skill to build up given our current trends. Uh, and then the reason I'm bringing this up now is that as I was looking into this article, um, I noticed um, a guy I follow on Twitter. Uh, I'm probably going to mispronounce his name, but I'm going to try my best. Andrew Shabilsky, who is a behavioral scientist and fellow at the Oxford Internet Institute, who posted a link to a potential retraction of the article, which is something that I think not a lot of people realize happens with academic research or perhaps happens as, as much as it does, you know, more in the sciences than other areas. Well, I was kind of dimly aware that this happened, but... Um, so the, the tweet I saw pointed to a site called Retraction Watch, which chronicles all of the journal articles, or not all of, but at least all the ones it knows about, all the journal articles that are retracted by the journals they were published in. And it's kind of a shocking amount that happens. And then I realized I'd actually seen Andrew Shabilsky speak, where he mentioned once that, uh, assume that half of all published research will be disproven within 10 years. And I think he was being kind of intentionally provocative on that point. But the, the point stands that a lot of this stuff gets uh, gets pulled back but the headline in uh, retraction watch about this article is called dispute over shooter video games may kill recent paper which you know haha pun funny sort of but well i guess let, let me ask the question so i mean usually when i'm you know researching for training purposes i'll i might see an individual study as a curiosity mm -hmm. but i don't know that i would make uh, like changes to my practice based on a single study, I would be more likely to look at meta studies or would want to see the same principle proven in multiple places before I would do anything about it. That's exactly the point I was hoping you bring up. And I can't remember exactly which episode we talked about meta studies before, but I know we've, we've used them in the past. And I think so the meta study being the study of other studies and seeing how they've stood up over time and how they're consistent or inconsistent with each other. I think you're right. I think that's, perhaps the more valuable analysis to base, you know, decisions of how you're going to build something on. But the the timeline in in, in this case, it, it's really fascinating because the two people who have kind of triggered the whole review process, uh, Malti Elson from the Ruhr University in Germany and Patrick Markey, a psychology professor at Villanova, they've kept this elaborate detailed timeline going back more than three years of their attempts to talk to the author of the original piece. Um, about their article, and basically they recrunched the numbers on their own and have concluded that some of the data may have been falsified. Uh, some of the original data was also missing and could not be retrieved to be analyzed. Many of the emails, one of the authors basically disappeared off the face of the earth and stopped responding to them entirely. Uh, and so since then, it's become more and more likely, it hasn't happened yet, but that the journal is going to publish a complete retraction of the article and say, uh, nope, those results didn't happen. But so why does this matter? 
is the question. And I've struggled with this a little bit to try to put my finger on exactly why I thought it was worth bringing up. But with all the headlines we've seen in the last few weeks about, you know, quote unquote, fake news. And then in my work, I've been thinking a lot about the value of peer review as something which is, you know, tangentially related to the stuff we cover here at best. But also the fact that it took more than three years to get to this point of the article probably being retracted. That's a long time for this to be sitting out there. And meanwhile, this article has found its way into broader news coverage and other um, potentially policy-influencing documents. There was a CNN.com opinion piece published by one of the authors after the 2013 Navy Yard shootings, where he kind of emphasized again that we need to control violent video games as a way to prevent these shootings from happening again. Uh, the American, um, the APA, the American Psychology Association, published a resolution on violent video games, which was a document designed to kind of influence policy toward these things, and it cited this article as one of its major sources for why violent video games could be a problem. So it's one thing to retract a paper, but you can't undo the damage that's been done uh, in, in other coverage based on it. And... You know, almost all of the episodes we've done, as I said, have been based on an academic article kind of similar to this one, or unless, like you said, they were the, the meta-studies and things like that. But just we and others are building on this stuff all the time, and I think I might have passed this by and not even bothered commenting on it if it weren't for all the fake news stuff recently. And this is not fake news. There's there's some differences here. You know, the peer review should have caught it. Um there's a lot of other things that, that should have gone on, but it, it was fairly blatant things in the data that um, basically totally invalidated the, the hypothesis they were testing to begin with. Yeah, when I read academic articles, I, I try to wade through, because articles always start with, here's what's been done in the field before, right? And here is the methodology we're going to follow. And they give their hypotheses and then their procedures and then they give their their data, and that's where I don't quite have the <laughs> the background to figure out if all their statistical methods and reasoning are are quite correct. I kind of have to skip a bit down to the bottom where they you know tell me, okay, here's what all of these <laughs> uh, Greek letters and, and so on mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my eyes glaze over a little bit when I when I hit those sections. Admittedly, I don't have that statistical background either, and. Also because so many of these studies, I think, have really limited sample sizes or are very specific to one uh, area or population. So a lot of the research I'll see published in the library science area, like it's great to see the results, but so many populations are different from each other. You know, the undergrads at my institution are very different from undergrads at another institution. Or maybe you work somewhere that has only graduate students. Like it, it's really hard to generalize or you shouldn't generalize at that level based on the sample sizes that a lot of these studies are working with, but yet, you know, they get into news coverage and next thing they're, you know, basing the idea that you shouldn't let your kid play violent video games off of a, you know, a small sample size with people who aren't demographically similar to you at all. Right. And in, in a new field, you know, there's, there's so many different variables in the equation that it's hard to control for them all. And you really need to have, a lot of studies in the same area before I think you can get to the point where you feel confident making public policy based mm -hmm. on <laughs> that research. Yeah, or should be anyway. But I I think that's why I'm more interested personally in the methodology of how these studies were done 
rather than results, because like that's something you can reproduce. That's something you can do with your own population and draw your own conclusions on. You know, whether you're working at an academic institution like I am, whether you have your own, you know, corporate training kind of stuff that you do. Uh, I think there's still room for experimentation and looking at results and and iterating your own approaches based on that. Mm-hmm. I just I felt very disillusioned after reading this. Like not not that I thought this was a shining example of academia to begin with, based on um, you know the title of the article and other stuff like that. But it does make me wonder what else uh, we take for granted, perhaps in some of these areas. That's like you said, it's a new field and still needs more time to be proven. I I think that uh, I mean in any academic field, there's probably going to be one or two studies that that slip through peer review that maybe shouldn't have uh, i don't think it's a reason to be disillusioned with the whole field of science yeah um i think that's a, a viewpoint that i've kind of seen disappointingly in the news where maybe people latch on to one particular example of one small thing going wrong in, in the field of science and then we you know kind of try to be disillusioned with the whole field <laughs> that said you know i i read the the article that we're, we're talking about. And from a training perspective, it, it, it almost makes me wonder what, what exactly they were trying to prove that was revolutionary in the first place. Mm-hmm. Because when you, when you, when you, when you talk to a trainer and you say, well, we have a study that showed that if you have people practice with guns, they get better at using guns. A trainer will probably say, yep. <laughs> <laughs> how yeah, much money I had did not you put into that, that study? <laughs> um, the yeah, the the end of the the article actually cites a guy named Thorndike, who kind of forms the bedrock of a lot of modern training. Who he had the idea that if you want to train something, you you put people in an environment similar to what they're likely to be encountering in the real world. And in this experiment, they gave people guns to practice with, and they were better at using guns after they finished. So it's not, wasn't terribly, you know, groundbreaking to me. Um, but yet at the same time, I feel like it actually would have been more groundbreaking if they had published what appears to be perhaps the actual data in that there was no training component, that you know, they didn't actually perform better. After oh, is practiced. that what the actual data was? It's a little unclear at this point still, mm. um, but it definitely does not prove that they got better. Hmm. Well, then that would be that would be interesting, I think. Then. Yeah. So I feel like in this case, the confirmation bias of maybe wanting to prove their own hypothesis may have actually hidden something that was interesting. Yeah, and I agree that the the headline kind of politicizes it a bit. Yeah. Although, I guess if you're doing academic publishing. Maybe you do what you can to attract attention to your work. Yeah, if, especially if you're tenure track. But that is, you know, by now I'm so far off topic of the kind of stuff we talk about here. But yes, I, I have many thoughts about the tenure system also. Well, I think a more interesting study would be just people's approaches to conflict resolution after playing violent video games. Uh, you know, when I when I was growing up, you know, I had people, adults usually, because I was a kid, telling me all the time that video games were rotting my brain and, like you said, was going to turn me into a uh, psychopath that mm-hmm. shot people <laughs> when I grew up. Not me in particular, but just, you know. Our whole generation. 
yeah the, the whole whole generation right and uh and, and ever since then i've naturally reacted against people who say that however now that you know i'm reading more research on psychology and and so on you know and, and thinking about you know if the only conflict resolution you have children practice involves uh destroying the thing that is opposing them you know is that necessarily the most healthy thing and and that's that's kind of in the dna of video games a bit i mean while pong you weren't trying to destroy the other paddle so that was something but i mean mm-hmm. you get to asteroids where you know you you shoot the <laughs> the the uh, asteroids obviously and then you get into space invaders where you know you're literally shooting the things that look funny before they can get to you and you know, I don't know if there's something there. I don't know if there there isn't, but I think that's an interesting field to maybe explore. And you know, I for one turned out okay playing Asteroids and Space Invaders. <laughs> somehow. Somehow. Some somehow. And you know, thousands, millions of people also did as well. So obviously it doesn't turn you into a sociopath, but I'm curious, you know, what kind of small trajectories that changes in your, your development to uh to play and practice things like mm-hmm. that. So I, I think that's more of a fruitful field of study than maybe just, you know, looking at whether practicing with a gun helps you shoot a gun. And that's probably such a long-term study. You know, you'd have to almost follow a group of subjects from childhood through adolescence into adulthood to really see how it plays out. It makes me wonder if something like that is still in the works because we're really, you know, only now or maybe in the last 10 years at a point where there's been enough uh our generation who spent enough years with video games to even start to have that conversation yeah yeah it would definitely be some longitudinal study mm-hmm. although you can probably do more more short-term studies as well with uh with children when they're in their more developmental stages mm-hmm. but i also kind of took issue with this article's or implication or you know reading between the lines that this was a negative thing overall you know, that just the the fact that maybe using a gun controller could teach you to shoot guns better, maybe that could be a positive thing. Like, maybe that could be used in law enforcement training or, you know, other things like that. Like, I felt like they went right for the, you know, the odd phrasing of, if they ever chose to shoot at someone, they would be more accurate. <laughs> or, or it was the quite, um, they would fire more accurately and be more likely to aim for the head. Which... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and like I said, to me, it's just an entirely just neutral thing, you know. To 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 me as a trainer, it's like saying, you know, hammers pound nails. <laughs> <laughs> That'd yeah, be the well. shortest published journal article of all time, perhaps. <laughs> it would be widely cited. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I'm not sure I have too much more to say about this, but I it, it's really interesting to follow. I'll put links to all this stuff in the show notes. And if you have a half hour to 45 minutes, take a look at the timeline that the um, that Elson and Markey put together for uh, of just their process of trying to dig into this data. It's really fascinating, and they, they've kept it exhaustive, and it's interesting to see this in the works. Um, Andrew Shabolsky, again, who I learned about this from on Twitter, called it the, uh, what was the quote he used? The video game science story of the decade. Not the original article itself, but the retraction of it. And uh, I don't know quite that I... Uh, understand that it's going to have that wide ranging of an impact but it's it's certainly really interesting yeah and i saw your notes here on replication rates for academic studies 
Yeah, they're shockingly low, <laughs> the highest. And there's some disagreement on this, depending on how you define replication and such. But the highest field um, replication rate being uh, once if I published a study, then maybe you would try to do the same thing to see if you could duplicate the results and, and you know, prove the validity of it. And the highest percentage of successful replication is 36% in psychology. Mm-hmm. And they, they drop off. Now, is that... There. Does that mean out of the studies that have attempted to replicate a result, 36% have been successful? Or does that mean that 36% of articles published in the field of psychology have been replicated? I believe it was the first one, that of those that were attempted to be replicated, only 36% were successful. Uh, okay. I will double check well, that to be sure in the show notes, but I'm, but I'm pretty sure that's what it was. Well, that is kind of depressing. Yeah. Yeah, I listened to, I forget what show it was on NPR, where it talked about this and how there's no glory in replicating studies as an academic mm-hmm. researcher. You know, we all know who it's came the up with thankless the theory work. of relativity. What's that? It's the thankless work. Right. Yeah. And they, they discussed ways to maybe incentivize replication a bit more. But, I mean, the, the fact remains that we all know who came up with a theory of relativity, but we don't know the names probably of anyone who actually tested it and... <laughs> And that's, validated. Yeah, that's right. a really good point. I never thought, man, how intimidating must it be to try to validate Einstein's work <laughs> or prove him wrong? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I, I guess if he proved him wrong, then he'd be famous. Well, good but, point. Uh, Maybe that's the motivation. Fame and fortune, and, or such as it is. Or you're, you're just that scientist like, oh, man, Einstein was right. Well, <laughs> Add me to the meta-study. <laughs> Add me to the meta-study. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> Well, I think we'll leave it there. Uh, Thanks for listening once again to Gamification Unlocked. I'm Chad Hayfley. And I'm Brandon Carper. If you have any thoughts on this kind of thing, um, violent video games in general, their applications as as training methods, I'd love to hear it on uh, Facebook or comment on our blog or on Twitter or just drop us a line. And until next time, it's your move.